Thank you so much, brother, for your graciousness. Appreciate your words there. And uh, yeah, just to reinforce, for those of you who knew, the one point, a couple of them were kind of jokes, good jokes actually, but uh, uh, the one sort of guideline is we don't want to use this time of Q&A to try to pit faculty against faculty. And we do have some differences of perspective sometimes, which is healthy because we're all wrestling through that. You know, some of those issues are like the extent of the atonement. We, you know, we're, we're uh, not all in the same place on that, but we're uh, all uh, uh, good friends about it and trying to wrestle through and we share articles with one another and, hey, you need to read this one, you need to read that one. And, and uh, so, you know, you'll see that view of Romans 7. We have some differences among the faculty on Paul's experience there. When, was he a believer, not a believer? Again, I'm not saying you can't ask about those things uh, if you're legitimately asking, but if you're just trying to pit faculty against faculty on, you know, uh, the timing of the great gathering together into Jesus in the air or some of those things, uh, just don't, don't use it to, to do that. But uh, other than that, any question, no guarantee I can answer it, but we'll uh, give it a shot. So, uh, who wants to go first? Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, I'm not sure, at least I've not run into anything that through the years that would say that there's some, something significant about the almonds. I suppose it, it could be, but the significance was to pull the one tribe out from the others as the one that, you know, Aaron's rod that budded to be the, he's the priestly line, etc. I don't know if there's some uh, significance in the almonds or not. Maybe someone else has. I, I don't know, but I, I, don't, I don't know what was significant about almonds as opposed to other things, other than... The, uh, a, a clear demarcation of the of Aaron's of family. So, yeah. Okay. Next, other question. Okay. Let's close in prayer. We're done. Nobody else has any questions. That's always nice. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wanting justice in an unjust world. Um, I, I certainly wouldn't claim to, to have the answer for you, how we solve that. Um, because if, if it were automatic as Christians that we solve it, then Paul wouldn't need to write what he wrote, writes in Romans 12, where he says, Don't take vengeance, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I mean, the very fact that Paul exhorts us not to go down that path is an indication that that's a tendency for us to go down that path, right? I mean... In other words, there's no use writing about something in Scripture by way of an exhortation if none of us struggle with it. So the fact that you see those kinds of statements or whatever they happen to be, but in this case, that specific one, uh, would show, um, show the case uh, that it's something we struggle with. One of the things uh, I've tried to do on a personal basis, now I'm not sure if you're asking so much on a personal or just you see some atrocity in the world and you think, why doesn't God you know, smite them, you know, that type of thing. Uh, but one of the stories in Scripture that really is uh, profound to me on a personal level, when maybe I'm wanting vengeance personally because of something I've done, is the story of when 
Um, David's son had ba basically usurped the kingdom. David leaves Jerusalem. He goes over the Mount of Olives weeping, throwing dust. And, I said, and then if you remember the story as it goes on, they go on down the, 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 they're marching along, and one of the descendants of Saul starts uh, railing on David, etc., and one of his men nearby says, uh, he's cursing David, basically, um, and uh, one of David's men says, let me go, you know, eliminate him, let me kill him, and David says this, it's really remarkable, he said, no, um, don't, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, don't, because who knows, maybe the Lord sent him to curse me. That is really a profound perspective. So when something happens in life where my initial reaction is to say, you know, that wasn't right what that, that person did to me or what that person said about me. Uh, I'm not saying I'm good at it or perfect at it, but I've tried to train myself to say, you know, maybe the Lord had them do that. Not saying it was right. And in fact, in that case, it wasn't right because if you know the rest of the story, later when David's restored to his kingdom, he goes back and he instructs his son Solomon about him and he, he gives restrictions that he can't leave the area around Jerusalem and if so, his life is, on his, is in his own hands and in fact he does. He, he leaves at one point and Solomon executes him. Uh, so it was, I mean, it was a terrible thing to do to the king what he was doing who had been deposed unjustly by his son, etc. Uh, but David's attitude was, you know, no, you're not going to go kill the guy. Maybe the Lord has sent him. So... Maybe if, when those things hit in our lives personally, to have that perspective of the sovereignty of God, uh, obviously, however you view the sovereignty of God, at the bare minimum, you have to say God allowed it. Uh, but David was even beyond that to say, maybe God sent him to do that. So, yeah, question? Sure. Uh, I think a, a significant passage on that is, is in Hebrews chapter 1. Um, Hebrews chapter 1 says this. Uh, verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And the writer of Hebrews opens here by acknowledging that in the past, God spoke in a variety of ways. And we, we know that from knowing Scripture. He spoke through dreams, visions, audible voice, etc., but in these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son or by his Son, the revelation that centers in his Son. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that there is no higher form of revelation that could be granted to us than the revelation that we have from the Son, i.e. in the Gospels, about the Son in the Epistles, uh, by the Son, uh, the book of Revelation, uh, which is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the revelation that comes from Jesus Christ. So... I don't want to push this passage more than what it's saying, but it's, it's in essence saying that the New Testament is the pinnacle of God's revelation. We should not expect more revelation, which is one of the fallacies, of course, behind all the cults, 
you know, if you're familiar with the Mormon cult, uh, the, the Book of Mormon is another testament, uh, as if we need a third testament. We've got the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Third Testament. Implication is, well, we need, we need higher revelation. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying there is no higher revelation than what is found in the Son. So that um, we, we shouldn't expect that. Now, I'm not saying that the, this verse or this passage is just a definitive statement that God, what God can and can't do. Um, never should this discussion be formulated in that way, what God can't. God can do anything He wants to do. That's not the issue. When it comes to the issue of, and, and this sort of touches on a debate in, in theology or in Christian circles on uh, continuationism or cessationism, the technical terms for sign gifts and God speaking and all of that, uh, sometimes, you know, both sides can build a straw man and tear it down. It's really not fair. But one of the straw men that is sometimes built is the idea that, oh, those of you who are cessationists, you say, you tell God what he can and can't do. Well, you can't, you can't give anyone the gift of languages, or you can't, you know, God, you can't uh, heal through a person. That's not at all fair. It's not at all accurate. What the cessationist camp is saying is, what has God himself chosen to do? We're trying to understand what God has chosen to do. Has God chosen to continue to speak to people through, miracle, I mean, through dreams, visions, audible voices? If God chooses to do that, it's his prerogative, and we submit to whatever he chooses to do. So the issue isn't what God can or can't do. It's what God has chosen to do. And a passage like this, as well as others, uh, would indicate, indicate, I'm not saying prove, would indicate that God, when he wants to speak, speaks through his word. He speaks through uh, the revelation he's given. And the highest form of revelation uh, is that which centers around his son. And, of course, then some people say, so, you know, if you, if you want to know what God has to say to you, read your Bible. And some people say, well, that's just too simplistic. I want to hear God speak to me audibly, you know, in a voice. Well, read your Bible out loud then. You know, I mean, it's, it, this is how God is going to speak to you. Now, again, uh, not saying what God can and can't do. If God chooses to do that, that's his prerogative. But, but it's a very dangerous path to be looking, expecting. Um, you know, God's going to speak to you through some vision, through, I mean, you know, church history is just filled with the examples of that approach and where it takes the, the church uh, into error, into heresy, etc. So, uh, again, can I give you chapter and verse that says there can be no visions today? No. And I wouldn't, since there is no chapter and verse, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying God doesn't ever do that. But the indication of the New Testament is that the way he speaks to us is through the New Testament or all, or all, all of Scripture. And that's the way we should seek to hear the voice of God and to know the will of God, etc. So, I mean, even a, you know, a passage like Ephesians 6.17, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the, 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 that statement is saying that Scripture is the Spirit's sword to point out things in our lives, to cut things out of our lives, uh, to accomplish His purposes. In fact, I said this last week. I don't know that I've ever said this before, but it's just something that's kind of ruminating around in my mind. Uh, as I've been thinking about this, I was teaching last week at Arrowhead Bible College, and, and um, I, I, the thought occurred to me that um, one of the reasons why we may undervalue the role of the Holy Spirit in the triune Godhead, you know, it's the... It's just easy for us to think Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you know, especially since we say them in that order. 
And we could very easily diminish that. I mean, we know about the Father and what He did. We know about the Son, but the Holy Spirit, it's maybe to a lot of Christians pretty cloudy or whatever. But when you think about one of the great, you know, you can think about the unique roles of each member of the Godhead. The Son, of course, died for us. He redeemed us. Well, what did the Spirit do for us? Well, um, when, you, you, when you put it in those terms, what did the Spirit do for us? This is what He did for us. I mean, He gave us Scripture. This is the sword of the Spirit. No wonder Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So, uh, ironically, some Christians who are trying to exalt the Spirit by looking for new revelation, the voice of the Spirit, are in essence diminishing the work of the Spirit because they're bypassing the major thing He has done for us as Christians by giving us the Word. So, um, in answer to your question, uh, you know, how do we respond? I'm sure everyone in this room have friends. I do. I have friends, family members who um, are looking to hear from the Spirit through a, a, a vision, a dream, audible voice. Uh, and so we all have to figure out how to navigate that in our conversations. But uh, obviously you can't go wrong by saying, well, um, you know, I'm not going to give a categorical assessment of that. Like, are you looking for a definitive statement? Do I think that's of the devil? Or the... But I'm just going to say, you know what, I, I, I don't have to worry if you take something from here. So just point, point people back to Scripture. That's the safest route. All right. Uh, yes? Sure, sure. Now, it is a little bit a uh, tough passage to navigate. It's important to recognize that Romans 9, 10, and 11 is a unit. Uh, all three chapters go together. And basically, just to get the big picture, and then we'll talk about specifics of your, what you're wrestling with there. Basically, the point of Romans 9, 10, and 11 is to say that um, because of Israel's unbelief, God has judicially blinded them or judicially hardened them. But Paul makes two very important uh, statements related to that. He basically says Israel's blindness or hardening is not total. In other words, there are exceptions. In fact, Paul says, look at me, I'm a Jew, so I'm saved. I believed in Jesus as the Messiah. So we're not saying that every Jew on planet Earth is hardened. There are exceptions. There's a remnant he, he talks about. So he says Israel is blinded and hardened, but with two exceptions. One, it's not total, and so it's only partial, and it's not permanent. It's only temporary. In other words, he says in chapter 11, his basic point is this, and he's speaking to Jews and Gentiles, where you talk, where you talk about the grafting in. In other words, the Jews have been, the Jews as the focus of God's plan of redemption have been temporarily set aside. And that is why the church today is composed almost exclusively of Gentile people. Now, there are Jewish believers, but around the world, the church is, I don't know what the, is 99% Gentile. And so uh, the Jews, because of their unbelief, were set aside. The Gentiles were grafted back in. But Paul goes on to say, uh, this, is not, this is not permanent. God is not finished with Israel. And in fact, Paul even makes it in such a strong statement. He says in chapter 11, verse 28, concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. 
mean, all you have to do to appreciate that is read the book of Acts. Who was it that persecuted the early church more than the Romans? It was the Jews. And in fact, the Jews, they, they would, they would uh, follow behind Paul. They would track him down. They would go to the next city. And, and I mean, they were just relentless in their persecution of believers. So concerning the gospel, they're enemies. And yet, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. So he is saying there, listen, they are now presently enemies, but that doesn't cancel God's election of them, his choice of them. In fact, verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God has not, uh, some translations, God has not repented of his choice of Israel. He, he chose Israel, he gave them promises, and he's going to fulfill those promises. He's going to complete those promises. And that's why he quotes up in verse 26, all Israel will be saved as it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will, I love how definitive, he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. In other words, this is what I promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about their descendants, about their people, and I'm going to fulfill it. So God is not done with Israel. He is going to fulfill his promises. And so once the fullness of Gentiles has come in, God will turn back to the Jewish people. Uh, years ago when I was preaching through Romans, and I came to chapter 11, my favorite commentary on Romans chapter 11 happened to be, and I do this by design, when I preach through a passage, it's just a personal commitment I've made, I, I will read 10 to 12 commentaries on a passage before I will ever preach it. And I always read broadly, and I'll read liberal commentators, I'll read commentators that I know I don't agree with their theology, but I, I just want to read as broadly on the passages as I can. So I was, reading, I was reading a variety of commentaries on chapter 11, and my favorite one on chapter 11 was by, I don't know if I'll be able to come up with his name now, but a pretty, a pretty uh, well-known and highly respected amillennial scholar, amillennial saying there's no kingdom for Israel, and he said this, I've got it in my file, and if I had known you were going to ask this question, I would have brought it with me, because it's such a powerful quote. Uh, he just said, there is absolutely no way you can take Romans 11 other than to say that Paul is asserting here that there is going to be in, a, in the future a mass salvation of the people of Israel and a fulfillment of the promises to them. And I'm thinking, this is by an amillennialist. But at least... He's consistent in his exegesis, even as his theology doesn't go there. In other words, his theology says God is basically done with Israel. There's not going to be a kingdom for Israel. But his exegesis says there's no other way you can take Romans chapter. You can't take it. He, said, he went down through all the explanations to try to explain it away uh, by people in his camp. Like, well, he's just talking about the remnant and da 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 And he just went through and he said, none of these even make any sense. There's no other way to take this. And I appreciate his intellectual honesty. That is what Paul is saying. So Paul is saying that Israel has been set aside. Gentiles have been grafted into the place of blessing, the place of focus. But we should not assume from that God is done with Israel or he's now going to break his promises with Israel or renege on them. No, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. He's not revoked his promises to Israel. So there will be a fulfillment of those promises. Good. All right, we may have time for, we got a couple minutes. Yes? Oh, 
Oh, yeah, cessationism, continuationism. Right. Sure. Sure. Well, a couple things there. One is you need to it is important with all of scripture that we take that the statements of scripture in their historical context. In other words, when Paul wrote Corinthians, all the gifts were operative. All of them. All the, the, the speaking gifts, the serving gifts, and the sign gifts. So that really doesn't, I'm not saying 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 are irrelevant in the study of cessationism versus continuationism, because it's certainly not irrelevant. But you can't say, well, Paul's, Paul talks about them speaking in languages uh, and, and prophesying, etc., so we know that means they go on forever. No, that's a jump. That doesn't mean they go on forever. That means they were going on then. And I don't know of any cessationist who would deny that in the first century, the gift of languages was operative, the gift of healing, the gift of miracles, uh, etc. Those were all operative. And so Paul, therefore, gives guidelines on how they are to function in that setting. So that doesn't prove, now I'm not saying it proves either way, it doesn't prove the cessationist camp that, oh, they were going on, but he doesn't give instructions about down the road what they're going to do, so therefore it proves that they cease or it proves that they continue. So... So, um, in answer to your question, one, um, why would Paul give instructions on those things? Because they were going on. And so, again, it doesn't prove whether they will continue to go on or not. Um, so, there are some statements in 1 Corinthians that, in, in, the, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 13, it's interesting you, you referenced, where Paul talks about three gifts, where he talks about, in fact, look, well, let's look at it real quickly, 1 Corinthians 13. He says this, uh, verse 8, Love never ceases, but whether there are prophecies, they will cease. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. Now I'm reading out of the New King James. Unfortunately, the translation of this isn't the clearest uh, because it uses even different words when the Greek words are the same words. But the point is this. When Paul writes about prophecies and about the gift of knowledge, he says they will, uh, they will be stopped passive. But interestingly, when he talks about the gift of languages, he uses the middle voice. Many uh, commentators suggest he's, he uses the middle to distinguish it because he's saying they will cease of themselves. Well, do we have any indication why they would cease? Well, we do in the very next chapter because in chapter 14, in verses 20 through 22, you might find it interesting to note this is the only passage, now get this, the only passage in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit specifically states the purpose of the gift of languages. This is it. There, the, I'm not saying there aren't examples of it being operative, but the only Holy Spirit-inspired purpose statement found in the New Testament. This is it. And what the Holy Spirit says through Paul, or Paul says under the Holy Spirit, is that the, the gift of languages is a sign to unbelievers. And his quote up in verse 21 a quote out of Isaiah 28, 11, and 12, if you go back in that context, the prophet says this, judgment is coming, and this is the way you will know judgment is coming. You will hear all these different languages. Okay, that's Isaiah 28. When you hear all these languages, you know that judgment is coming because God's judgment of the Jewish people was always by a foreign nation. Assyria, northern kingdom, Babylon, southern kingdom, Romans, 
The Romans in the first century wiped out Jerusalem, etc. So the, Paul quotes that, and then he draws this conclusion, therefore tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. A sign of what? Isaiah 28, 11 and 12, a sign of coming judgment. So, the only place in the New Testament where the Holy Spirit gives us a specific purpose statement for the gift of languages is a sign of coming judgment. When did the judgment hit? It hit in A.D. 70. That's when the Romans came, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, etc. So, it was a sign. The fact that God gave this gift was a sign to the Jews of the first century. Judgment. Any Jew who knew his Bible should have known what Isaiah 28, 11 and 12 said and what this gift should have been indicated for them, for the Jewish people in the first century. Judgment is coming. And it came. Now, is that proof positive that the gift of languages stopped in A.D. 70? No. But it's sure and a very important issue. If that's the only statement the Holy Spirit gives us in all the New Testament for its purpose, as a sign of coming judgment, and the judgment hit, you, it begs the question, what is its purpose today, supposedly? Well, you could say, well, maybe it's going to be revived and it's going to be a sign of coming judgment to the Jews again. Possibly. At least if you go there, you're on biblical footing for the purpose, the stated purpose of the gift. But if you are familiar with uh, what many of our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, say about the gift of languages, or tongues as it's often called, uh, all sorts of purposes are assigned to it without biblical uh, definition. It's just, well, it's you. God uses that to... Help me in my private prayer language. And God uses that to help me uh, ascertain his will. And God, well, let's find chapter and verse. This is the only chapter and verse on its purpose. And so it, it fulfilled its purpose. Again, I'm not saying that means it's, it can't go on. But it's, it's, uh, it's evidence that our brothers and sisters in Christ who want to hold on to it, at least if they're going to be intellectually honest, need to wrestle with. Because that's what it says. So now there's, there's way more of the subject, but that's just one of the examples of those sign gifts that is specifically stated its purpose and, and possible cessation. So, all right. Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Go right ahead. We're done. Father, we are thankful for our time together this morning, and uh, as Kyle mentioned, uh, what tremendous songs were chosen for us to sing and to lift our hearts and to uh, express our love and our adoration. And uh, Father, pray that uh, even as we kind of closed here in 1 Corinthians 13, we would remember the message of that, uh, that powerful chapter that all of these things will eventually, uh, their, their usefulness will be gone, even faith. 
Even hope, because faith will become sight. Hope will be realized. Uh, but out of all of these things, of prophecy and knowledge and languages and faith and hope, the only one that endures through all eternity is love. So may we love you wholeheartedly. And even as uh, one of the passages Evan read for us, love one another fervently. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.